Welcome back. Last week, Richard, we talked about some of the problems and concerns associated with uh, labeling children with what well, we talked last week, primarily about labeling children with learning disabilities. But we talked about the concerns associated with providing any label um, and the potential self-fulfilling prophecy associated with that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There are advantages and disadvantages to labels um, in educational in in, in uh, schools. The um, advantage, one of the advantages of labels, is that it it, it buys it gets you services. You know, right. if you can say that a a child has this a particular disorder then the child qualifies for extra services. That's right, right. So this week we're gonna, we're gonna kind of branch off of that from last week and talk about the advantages, some of the advantages associated with providing labels. And um, we're gonna begin with the idea that, um, you know, I, I remember my initial training, um, you and I have talked about this many times, maybe not on the podcast so much, but, but certainly um, as we we're talking about uh, our work over the years, um, my early training and I know your early training emphasize the importance of an accurate diagnosis. Right. And, right. Um, you know, <laughs> a lot of times these days, uh, people will jump to diagnoses very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. As soon as they see a couple of symptoms, they will um, grab onto a, a, a diagnosis and, and even professionals will throw a diagnosis out there and, and begin treatment. And lo and behold, you know, after a couple of weeks, that treatment is no longer effective. And then they go back to the drawing board. Um, and and our, our early trainers would have said, that's because you got the diagnosis wrong. Exactly, right? right. And so today we're gonna to talk about learning disabilities specifically and talk about why it's important, you know, to make a correct diagnosis and what benefit that that will actually have for the student. Right, and we see this playing out today in a couple of different, um, diagnostic categories right. um, because our, our diagnostic decisions are based on the um, on symptoms, symptom presentation. In other words, you have these symptoms. And if you have the, if you have these symptoms, then that the right. conclusion is you have the disorder. And that's not necessarily true. And I think we've seen that with um, ADHD, I think we've seen it, I think we're seeing it currently with autism. You know, even some professionals, they see a child who has a couple of, of this classic symptoms of autism, and they say, well, you have these symptoms, so you have to have the disorder. Right. And it doesn't logically follow that because you have symptoms, you have the disorder. The other thing that's beginning to emerge in our in psychology and psychiatry is that we know that certain symptoms appear across disorders. Right. So, you know, just because you can't attend doesn't mean you have ADHD or just because you have poor impulse control. You know, those are the classic symptoms, but it doesn't mean you have ADHD because now we, we, we know enough about the brain to know that the same brain systems are involved in various disorders. And so we have to be careful about relying only on symptoms. I, I, absolutely. And, and I think that that's a, a critical point. Um, and that is that just because you have certain symptoms doesn't mean that you have a disorder. It doesn't mean exactly. that there's something wrong. And I think you have to be very careful because you can have symptoms and be completely normal, neurotypical. Right. Uh, many of us have certain symptoms of, of disorders, but we're, we're, we would still fall in the broad category of normal. 
Right. And, and, and we can, I mean, we can induce some of those symptoms um, involuntarily. You know, you, you can, um, you, you put a person in a uh, neurogenetics or a, um, a molecular genetics course um, who's never had the background information and they're going to look like they have ADHD in that class because they're not doing any of the work. They're doodling. Looking around, right? Yeah, looking, looking out the windows, falling asleep. Right. And, and, and it also introduces the, um, some of the significant difficulties and challenges associated with childhood mental health um, and our work with kids because the, the same symptoms could be present or could be manifest for several different conditions. Right. And, and I think that it's really important to mention that at some developmental level or in some conditions, every symptom that we associate with mental illness or a mental health condition is perfectly normal and acceptable. Exactly. You know, it, nobody, nobody scoffs at a five-year-old who has an imaginary friend. Right. A 25-year-old right. with an imaginary friend is a very different situation. Right. Um, you know, it, so we, we look at some of these symptoms and characteristics and at some times they're perfectly acceptable and perfectly normal, um, mm -hmm. but other times they're not. Um, uh, related to what we're going to talk about today, you know, when we think about learning disabilities, um, we think about things like uh, dyslexia, for example, and, and people will, you know, say, well, the, the child is reversing letters. Um, well, reversing letters is perfectly developmentally normal until about the age of eight, nine years old. So about yeah. third grade. Mm -hmm. um, kindergarten, first and second graders who are reversing letters, that doesn't mean that they have a have dyslexia, but dyslexia, right. we have to look at those symptoms and characteristics within a context. And so um, we have to be careful about jumping to those labels, just like we talked about last week. Right. Yeah, because, and, and the other thing about labels is that um, once you once you attach a label to a child, um, one of the problems is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you have a learning disability, so you're stuck with this for the rest of your life. Right. which may not be the case. You have right. autism, it may not be the case. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The other thing is, is that you're laying all the blame on the child. Right. You know, there's something wrong with you internally and, um, and you, don't, you don't take account into, into account teaching or parenting or environmental influences. It's something wrong with the child. And the other thing is, is you send the wrong message to the child because you're saying to the child or the adult, you, know, you have this disorder, and so it 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 makes the person feel like, well, there's really nothing I can do about it. You know, I, I was born with this thing, so labels can send these messages. And, and the worst for me, the worst is you can't do this on your own. You have to have accommodations. Right. What what kind of a message does that send to? You know, you you're you're not capable of doing this like everybody else in the room we need to do something special with you, okay? So I, while we understand the need for accommodations, we have to be very careful about the other message, the other side of that coin, that there's another message there. Having said that, you know, you raise all these problems with labels. The fact is there are kids who do need help. Right. There are kids where there really is something wrong. Right. And one of those groups is kids with specific learning disabilities. Right. And so, so we'll start out with a little bit of a history uh, of learning disabilities, um, because I think it's important that we, that we look at it within a developmental context. Um, right. and, and again, thinking about what, what it 
what we're actually talking about with a learning disability as opposed to um, you know, some other difficulty. Um, you know, you know, we're gonna talk in just a few minutes, we'll be talking about um, what, what I refer to as a curriculum disorder um, because the student is having a hard time, but it's not really the kid's fault. It's- um, we're, gonna, we're gonna have an epidemic of that, Dr. Bernie. Yes, we this, are. This fall, we're gonna have an ap epidemic of curriculum disability. Yes, we're, 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 and we will definitely be getting into that in just a few minutes because that, that's going to be, I don't even know what we're going to do about that. So, um, but first, a, a little bit of history about learning disabilities. You know, surprisingly enough, it wasn't until the late 1960s that the, the federal government even first recognized learning disabilities, right? Despite the fact that they were first described in the 1800s. Right. This is not new. Right. This idea of learning disabilities and ADHD and all these things, they're by no means the, the, the they didn't emerge because of modern culture right. or video games or the internet. Right. These things have been around since the 1800s. Right. Okay? The different, usually by physicians, uh, they would eventually see these kids and they would notice these sort of, um, odd behaviors that some kids manifested. But yeah, this goes back into the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. But, but not until the 1960s did we get any, any, any ruling from the federal government that said, you know, we should be, we should be educating these kids with, with learning disabilities. And curiously, you talk about the 60s. The field of learning disabilities was born out of the civil rights movement. Right. Because the first time, um, it was Brown versus Board of Education, mm -hmm. 1954, that, that this idea of separate is not equal. Right. Um, that's what that was about. And that was based on a person's skin color. And, and we said, no, you can't segregate schools because these schools are not equal. You're not getting an equal education. And so parents of children with learning problems, you know, and, and, in the 30s and 40s, we knew this, there were certain kids who seemed to be able to do everything mm. except read or right. calculate or write, that there was, they were completely normal in all other ways. They, there was no mental impairment, there was no cognitive impairment, but they simply struggled. And some never were able to learn, but never, never able to learn how to read, never be able to write. And the parents knew that, they said, my, my kid's normal, but these kids were put into separate usually separate schools. Right. Some of them are put into state institutions. And, and I think that is, that's such an important point because, um, and, and I, I worry that today's podcast, we're gonna go, we're gonna follow some of these rabbit trails a little bit, but you know, Richard, what about those people that talk about, you know, the golden gate, the golden years, the, the good old days. The good when, old days. You know, when everybody behaved in school and, you know, students yeah. all did what they were supposed to you know, usually they're talking about 1940s, 1950s, um, even to the 1960s. Um, but, but at those times, a lot of students with disabilities were not in school. And not that we would blame all students with disabilities as creating the problems in schools or anything like that, but it creates a lot of diversity in right. school. And when you have hey, a lot so of diversity, it puts a, another layer of, of um, challenge into the management and the organization of the school. Forrest Gump grew up in those years. Right. 
And you, if you've ever seen Forrest Gump, you know how he got his accommodations. Right. Um, he he would he couldn't get into the building. I mean, he he was he had leg braces, and so he was just barred. And it was just assumed that if you had any kind of um, condition, if you couldn't access the building and the curriculum, you couldn't go to school. Right. And that's what parents rebelled against. They said, "Wait a minute, our children deserve." to be in schools. Um, you shouldn't put them in church basements. And literally that's what was happening to these kids is they either didn't go to school or they were put in separate facilities or they were put in state institutions. And the parents finally, based on what they saw with the civil rights movement said, wait a minute, we have rights too. We should be doing a similar thing. And that's why the 1960s are so important for this movement because right. it, it came out of that era of the 1950s where kids were excluded from schools when you i'm sure when you when you when were you in elementary school uh, the, 70, late 70s 70s in the late 70s yeah so it was just beginning when you were in elementary school mm -hmm. i never saw a child with a handicapping condition i never saw a child with i don't think we probably had kids with learning disabilities but they just did poorly in school maybe dropped out when they were 16 but we were never aware of of kids with special needs because they just didn't they weren't in built they weren't in school buildings in the 60s right and yeah and i remember it because you know well and, and as our timeline progresses you know um in the late 60s we have um some our very first federal legislation that said right. to be educating these children and then that evolved and that was with public law 94 142 um the educate all children's uh children act and then uh, that later evolved into, um, you know, some additional um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, legislation, and eventually went to the Individual Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA, right. and which is still has been reauthorized a, a variety of times over the years, and is still in act today. But all of that really started to, you know, get set in the 1970s. Right. Um, yeah, when I was in elementary school, I remember students being pulled out of school uh, or out of the classroom uh, right. to go to other classrooms for things. Um, you know, I had I have family members who have um, had different uh, either learning disabilities or different things. Right. And they would be pulled out to go to other classrooms. You know, certainly remember kids. You know, were just before lunch they would get called to the office and we had no idea what was going on, but those kids wow. were getting called down to take ADHD medication. Right. Because um, at that time they only had the short acting uh, mm -hmm. medications. And so, you know, we really started to see those things emerging in the, in the mid to late seventies. And certainly by the eighties um, that was really taking, taking root. And we were seeing a lot of uh, special education classes. And we started talking about all of the different um, exceptionalities identified under the, Individuals with Disability Education Act. Right. Yeah, because um, and because prior to 1975, um, kids were excluded. If you couldn't handle the regular curriculum, mm -hmm. kids were excluded. You were put someplace else, right. uh, hidden, stayed at home, but you weren't in the regular classroom. And it infuriates me when so-called psychologists, or usually they're writers, newspaper columns. We'll say, well, when I went to school, we didn't have the, you know, we were, they were tough on us, and they were no. You had a very homogeneous group. Right. There were there were no kids with ADHD. The kids who had ADHD 
got punished and kicked out of school. Right. If you couldn't handle what was going on in the classroom, you were removed permanently. There, there just wasn't a place for you. So it wasn't that we were more well-behaved, but the kids who had problems simply weren't present. They weren't in the classroom. Because if you don't think about it today, 80% of children, roughly 80% of children, right. fine. they don't need anything. And if, you, and if you had a school of just those 80%, we call those magnet schools. It would look just like it did back. You can have a selective admissions policy or a selective retention policy, and you keep just the 80%. You don't have serious discipline problems because you're excluding that. What happened in 1975 with the Education of All Handicapped Children Act, as the name implies, we're saying, no, those kids deserve an education too, whether it's color of skin, handicap and condition, gender. Right. You know, like you, you have the whole Title IX movement. Everybody deserves an opportunity to have the same education, okay? That's what changed in the 70s, was right. inclusion, because before that they were excluded. In the 1970s, they are included. Right. And one of those groups is, is, is a group of kids who seem to be normal in every way, mm-hmm. but who simply can't learn what's right. presented in our standard curriculum. Right. So, so that, of course, brings us to specific learning disabilities. Right. And, you know, when we think about learning disabilities, I, I did a workshop or I, I did a little talk on this the other week. And <laughs> Dr. Mars, the, the, the only way that I could really narrow it down for the group that I was talking to is uh, learning disabilities is a diagnosis of exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you're, you rule out everything else. And if you and after you rule out everything else, if there's still a problem and you don't have an answer to what's going on, then that's probably a learning disability. So you're ruling right. out intellectual problems, you're learning, ruling out other developmental problems, you're ruling out medical problems. And if you rule out all of those things and say there's none of those things happening, it's probably a learning disability. Right. Yeah, the child can hear and see, and there's no medical problem, there's no biological problem that, that seems to be causing it. You're right. It's a it's a it's a diagnosis by exclusion. Right. Mm-hmm. So so that in and of itself introduces some challenge right. um, because it's not you used the word a few minutes ago is you know thinking about a, a homogeneous group where everyone in the group looks about the same. Um, well, when you when it comes to learning disabilities, that is a very heterogeneous group. Everyone is a little bit different. Right. We yeah. try to create little categories based upon symptom presentation, but for the most part, you know, every student with a learning disability is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it creates a lot, of, um, a lot of headache when trying to introduce interventions or strategies to help these students because um, what works for one student may not work for another student, even if so many of the characteristics look exactly the same. Right. There's some subtle difference that we may or may not be able to recognize that will make a treatment effective for one kid and not effective for another kid. That's right. You can't think of specific learning disabilities as a monolithic structure. It's not. It's, it's more like a stew. You know, there's a lot of little pieces. Um, there are a lot of little facets to this thing. And you're right. They're all different. Right. You try to categorize them as much as you can. You know, if, if a child has a reading disability, so you put those over here, it's a math disability, it's over here. But, but you're right, um, they're very, it's a very heterogeneous group. There's a lot of variability in that group. Right. And the other thing is, 
we, to, the important, important points to remember is that this is a hypothetical kind. We don't, we don't, we don't know. I mean, we call it that so that we have a common vocabulary because it does make a difference whether we're talking about autism spectrum disorder or specific learning disabilities. Right. It's a huge difference. And we have to be, we have to have those, we have to have this vocabulary so we can talk to each other. Right. And, and, but it is a hypothetical construct. So you can't say this child has, this child has a learning disability and that's the reason she can't read. Right. No, it's not, it's not an, it's not meant to be an explanation. Right. No, because it's hypothetical. We do, there's no real thing. At the same time, we do believe that there's something different about this child's, how this child's brain right. manages information. Right. So hypothetical, but. Right. And there, there is some good research about that. So, but, but first, the, so when we think about learning disabilities, let's quickly suggest that, say that there's, there's four different types of learning disabilities, really only three that are recognized in schools. Um, right. But there's a total, really four learning disabilities. Um, you have a reading disability, uh, which we call dyslexia. We'll get back to that in just a second, because um, it's not necessarily some mysterious letter reversal um, thing. It's, it's dyslexia just means difficulty reading. That's really all that means. Um, right. Dysgraphia, which is a written expression um, disorder. Um, dyscalculia, which is a, a math disorder. And what we call a... Um, a nonverbal learning disability, um, right. which is uh, another, which really isn't recognized too much in schools, but uh, it's associated with um, difficulty with social skills and social interactions. Um, and if we think about what, what we used to refer to as um, the autism spectrum, where you had on the severe end, you had you know severe autism, and on the mild end, you had something referred to as Asperger's disorder. Mm -hmm. um, don't have that diagnosis anymore thanks to DSM-5. Um, a little bit more towards the mild end of things from Asperger's would be specific uh, nonverbal learning disabilities. Um, right. down there. So it's a, some of those similar traits, but more on the mild end of that autism spectrum, perhaps. Right. But, right. but again, it's not really recognized in schools at all. Right. So in, in schools, we only look at reading, writing, and math. And we, and we have these three groups and if you've ever seen a child with dysgraphia, you, you, it just looks like whatever the brain normally does to put words on paper, this brain doesn't seem to do that. Okay? Right. And you have to attribute it to the brain because that's where these things happen. Right. Can we find out what's going on in the brain? No, we don't have the technology to study neural pathways right. and, and, and to get a, a a clear explanation of what the brain is doing. We just don't have the technology to image the brain in that way. But we're making the assumption that there's some underlying brain problem. Right, right. And, you know, so thinking specifically about uh, dyslexia, for example, um, there, we, we know from some of um, Stephen Pfeiffer and some other uh, researchers, some of their good work, um, Chaywitz's and um, and there's some other really good work with um, dyslexia. Um, but there are subtypes. There are, there are um, <clears throat> subcategories within dyslexia based upon the way in which the students' um, symptoms present. So if they're adding phonemes 
if they don't if they can't do phonemes, um, meaning the individual sounds of the of the letters, and then blending those those sounds together to make the word. Um, some students have difficulty reading the whole word. That's sort of like a visual. Um, and then there's a, a few others that, that are sort of in between and include all of those things. Um, we try to differentiate those, but again, um, the intervention that we would use is going to vary. Um, but Joe Torgerson and some others have done some really fascinating research looking at that neurobiology, and they did, they've done MRI, uh, functional MRI and, and, and some different scans of, of brains while they're reading before and after intervention. And there, there are some changes that happen in the brain at the, at the neurobiological functional level right. when a student is a non-reader uh, versus when they are a reader. But it's not diagnostic. And again, it, that's, the, that's the point that we're trying to emphasize here is, yeah, you can see some of those differences, but those differences exist anytime you develop a new skill. Right. Exactly. So, you know, we, we make this big deal that, oh, well, look, this brain is, is a, a reading disability brain and this is a, a reading brain. Um, so that must be the areas of the brain that cause a problem uh, for reading. Well, you know, if, if you learn how to do anything new and you look at your brain before and you look at your brain after, there's going to be a difference. And it doesn't mean that, oh, that must be the, you know, the cooking fish area of the brain because now you know how to cook fish. It, right. it doesn't work that way. No. And, and, you know, we're not looking at neurons. We're looking at blood flow. Right. We're looking at where blood is going. And that tells us that this area of the brain is active. That's all it tells us. Right. Is that this area of the brain is active. It doesn't tell us what's going on there. It simply says this area seems to be more active at this time. Right. In most, in most brains. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry about that. I don't know why I used an example of cooking fish. That was. Yeah, that's the first time I've heard. <laughs> you know, cooking fish region. Yeah. You know, hey, I, I was thinking about a kid learning how to fish. And kind of, I don't know. Uh, I should have come up with something else, but kind of, it's, it's, it's early in the morning. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I, I, didn't, I was cooking fish. What? Okay. Uh, or tying a bow tie. There you go. That's it. That's a skill that you don't have. And then it becomes that's right. You have. If you looked at our, that's right. If you look at a group of people who can't tie bow ties and you look at a group of people who can, during the act of tying the bow tie, blood would go to certain regions of your brain and not go to those regions in my brain because I don't have, they're not developed yet. Right. Okay. So but, that's all it means. It's where's, where's the blood going? Where's the activity occurring? Not what is the activity? All we know is where the activity is occurring. We, we don't know what's going on there. Right. And, and we, we make some assumptions based upon what the, tip, the way the typical brain is organized. Right. So right. if a certain area of the brain is getting more oxygen uh, or more glucose, then we say, well, that region of the brain is usually associated with, with visual um, mm -hmm. perception. And so that must mean that it's, the visual cortex is working. Well, right. that individual person's brain may be structured a little bit slightly mm -hmm. different. And right. um, so we don't know. But so with right. our three types of disabilities, so dyslexia, dyscalculia, and dysgraphia, there are, there are subtypes. Like I said, with dyslexia, we have four or five primary um, subtypes. With mm -hmm. dysgraphia, um, the written expression disorder, we, the student can present with a couple of different 
uh, challenges. It could be the way in which they put the, they write the letters on the paper, um, whether they organize the paper, and then we get into issues with, you know, perhaps needing occupational therapy and some of those kinds of things. Um, Rich, I really need to show you um, some sa writing samples uh, of some um, that I've collected recently, and it's remarkable because of the challenges that some students have with writing. Um, and then with dyscalculia, though, we have, um, you know, you have issues that could be purely associated with just organizing the brain in such a way to understand how numbers work, um, all the way to actually it's a issue with dyslexia because the student can't read the, uh, the, writ the word problems or some of those kinds of things. And so, you know, you, you have a variety of issues that could be, could be present within each of the three um, right. diagnoses. That's um, the heterogeneity. Right, exactly. Broad spectrum. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and in schools, we don't, um, we don't necessarily differentiate those subtypes. Um, if a student is identified as having a learning disability, um, we will talk about, well, um, she needs help with reading or she needs help with math. We don't really do a whole lot with written expression, um, unfortunately. Sometimes it's just kind of added on to like reading, but um, we just say that they have difficulties in one of those two, one of those areas, and then we're going to provide intervention for that. And so, again, the, the issue with heterogeneity really takes root there because we don't differentiate that stuff. Right. And the other thing about schools, when, when these kids present in a school setting, um, there, we approach it from a biological perspective. You know, when, when we find these children who have these, what we believe are brain-based learning disabilities or learning disorders, um, we, we sort of make the assumption that, okay, this, this child's going to struggle and there may be limited um, improvement because this, this, isn't a, this isn't because they haven't been in school. This isn't because they've been missing school. It's not because they haven't had good teachers that have been going to an impoverished school. That's an educational, that's a curriculum. That's what you refer to as curriculum disability. These are kids who, even under the best of circumstances, struggle to learn right. what they should be learning at a particular chronological age or grade level. In the, in the as we were, as our field was trying to figure out what learning disabilities were, there, from a biological perspective, there was another group saying, none of that matters. Right. It doesn't matter why the kid, all the kid needs is intervention. And so out of that movement came that multi-tiered system of support. In other words, we'll, we'll work with this child, we'll give this child a little bit of extra help. And if that doesn't work, we'll increase the amount. And if that doesn't work, we'll increase the amount. I think the cruelty there, there's a cruelty in both camps, whether it's biological or, or instructional. The cruelty there is that many of these kids are never going to be able to learn. Their brains are structured in a way that they will never overcome. They may overcome the reading disability to an extent, but, right. but you take a child who truly has a brain-based learning disability, there are going to be limitations. And that child, we can't assume that that child will get to, to become a fluent reader. Right. It, it just isn't going to happen. And to give parents or teachers 
the impression that with enough intervention, you can get to normal, I think is a, is a cruel hoax. Right, yeah, and, and I think, so um, thinking about that, we, we should mention that there, there are a couple of different ways in which we identify a, a learning disability. Um, traditionally, prior to about 2004, 2000, you know, with, with the um, some reauthorizations and things that happened in 2000, the early 2000s, um, prior to that time, learning disabilities were primarily identified through what we refer to as the discrepancy model. And what that means is we, as psychologists, we would do testing. Um, and that testing included a, um, a, an examination of the student's cognitive ability or IQ. Um, in some states, we're not allowed to call it IQ. We call it intellectual, dis uh, intellectual ability or cognitive ability. Um, so we look at their cognitive ability because, well, we could do a whole podcast on what IQ is, but really all IQ is, is a predictor of how well a, a student should do in school. That's really all IQ is. We'll get into that at a different time. But um, so we would assess the student's IQ. Um, we would assess their academic achievement in reading, writing, and math. And we would make a comparison it, because again, IQ should predict about how well a student does in school. And so if their IQ suggests that they would be in the average range, and then you assess their academic achievement scores uh, or abilities, and they're below average, they're, what that suggests is that their academics aren't at the level we would expect based upon their IQ, and that is a learning disability. Then right. we would be tasked with doing some kind of cognitive processing tests. And um, my goodness, that, 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 that's another whole podcast on what in the world is a cognitive processes? Because, you know, people say, oh, he's got a processing disorder. Okay. I mean, everything that happens in your brain is a cognitive process. So I don't know what that reading is a cognitive process, technically. Uh, so, um, you know, but we would do cognitive processing tests, whether that looks at memory or executive functions like attention and, um, or phonemic awareness um, or uh, visual motor, uh, that's your favorite, Richard. Um, right. So, um, but we would do some kind of cognitive process to try to identify perhaps a reason why there's this uh, discrepancy. And it is very brain-based. We're looking at a neuropsychological examination of the students so we can identify the, the, the idea that their brain is not functioning in a way that allows the student to read at the ability level they should be able to read or right. do writing. Right. Mm -hmm. so that was yeah, it's, just it's, just, it's just a way of saying, you know, when we go back to the 60s and those parents said, it's not an intellectual deficit. Right. It's, it's something else, okay? And so you give an IQ test and says, well, you do have average IQ, but man, you can't read at all. Right. That defines a learning disability. It's just a, another way of defining it right. psychologically. Exactly. And, and so, mm -hmm. so for, for a long time, that's the way that we identified learning disabilities. But then um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we got into this, this movement began to emerge where they were saying that the discrepancy model um, introduced this idea of waiting to fail. And, and what that means is that, um, you know, if we're honest, very early in elementary school, kindergarten first, maybe even in the second grade, um, kids don't know a lot. 
So right. IQ could be average and their academic achievement scores could be average, even if they really don't know how to do much as it right. were, like academics. Right. Um, and so the, the probability or the likelihood of finding a discrepancy between ability or IQ and achievement what was pretty small in those early academic uh, elementary school years. Yeah, yeah, you're giving them two tests, but there's only so much you can ask a five-year-old. Right. I mean, so there has to be some overlap between those two. Yeah, and I remember in the, in the early 2000s and even into the mid to late 2000s, testing kids um, because they would refer kids in, in kindergarten, first grade for um, learning disability, reading disorders. Um, and you know, if they knew how to spell their first name, they're going to come out average. If they could recognize, you know, 10 or 15 letters, they were going to come out as average. Right. Um, and, you know, just, you know, stop the assessment if they could read the word in or the word dog, because then it was above average, you know. Um, so identifying a student then was really difficult. And so um, the waiting to fail idea was that we had to wait until they would be expected to learn enough for that discrepancy to really manifest. And that was a that was a cruel thing to do to kids because in those years we knew, for example, that certain kids, certainly by first grade, you yeah. get those kids and they weren't learning. There was something wrong, but you couldn't um, you couldn't get a large enough difference between IQ and achievement to provide extra services for that child. So the child had to languish without intervention. Until the until the scores were were large, there was a large enough difference, and that usually was around third grade, right. fourth grade. You know, so you'd have to wait until we, you could show it on test scores, which was a cruel thing to do to get these kids to wait for right. three years before they could get services. Right, because by then they had missed most of the fundamentals. That's right. And now you're going to, you're going back to teaching a, a third grader, you know, some of those early from phonics and you know that anemic awareness that they should have learned in kindergarten and first grade right. and they're now learning it in kindergarten or third grade or fourth grade even so right. yeah and had they gotten the intervention earlier it probably would have had a much bigger effect okay. yeah so, so in response to that district said well wait a minute let's just let's just figure out let's get a way to figure out whether this first grader really needs extra help yeah yeah, so, so a lot of uh, educational researchers and, um, well, we'll just say activists in, in different states, especially like Oregon and here in Florida and, and in different states, they um, really started to push this idea of curriculum-based assessments. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, I, it was first called Response to Intervention, RTI, um, and that later evolved into what you mentioned a, a moment ago, MTSS, the multi-tiered system of support. And what that suggests is that if at any grade level, a teacher feels as though, and then we'll come to a team, and then the team feels as though the student isn't progressing at the same pace that mm -hmm. the students in the class are, then we do, um, we can do curriculum-based or classroom-based assessments right. to see if there's a difference between this particular student and the rest of the students in the school and in the classroom. And mm -hmm. if there's a big enough difference, we'll just, we call that a gap analysis, there's a big enough gap between the student's performance and the other comparison groups of performance, um, then interventions are provided, um, developed and provided immediately. You know, so this is a, a very quick process that can happen. 
right? You don't have to wait for test scores to check, right? You can do it the first day of first grade. You can start this process. Right, yeah, so no longer are we waiting. We are, um, we're looking at what's going on with the student right away and providing that intervention quickly. Right. Um, and then we monitor the progress based upon those interventions. And if the, the student is have, still having difficulty, then a more intensive intervention is provided. Um, mm -hmm. And we monitor that one for a little bit. And then if after all of those interventions are in place, and if, this, if the student still isn't progressing at a rate that we would like for them to be progressing, then they refer, are referred to um, special education services right. um, would be identified as having a learning disability. To get more intensive services. Right, right. So um, now, while that sounds great, um, because the students, and there are many facets of that that are fantastic, um, there are some other issues with that. Um, in, in the early 2000s, we were, I remember, and Rich, I knew that you remember this article um, that came out about um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Um, and what that said was that we're moving into this direction of RTI and NTSS, <clears throat> which has a lot of um, important benefits. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we started moving in that direction, we got rid of testing. So now we are no longer looking at students through standardized testing that we as psychologists would administer. We're just looking at what the student does in, in classroom. What the challenge with that is that um, if any of you, anyone listening, if you have a student in elementary school, you know that what students are learning in elementary school now is not consistent with what we learned in elementary school. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not saying those were the good old days or anything like that, but there are schools where kindergartners are doing book reports, for example. Um, from a developmental perspective, that's not typical. Right. Just throwing that out there very bluntly. It is not typical to expect a kindergartner to be able to read, to formulate thoughts um, to, and organize them in such a way that they can do a book report. Right. Um, but yet th those are some of the expectations um, of kindergartners in many schools, public schools. Right. Um, and that creates problems because if, if a student isn't able to do that, even if they're completely typically developing and they mm -hmm. can't do that, they could be identified as having a learning disability. Right, yeah, they can't manage the curriculum. Right, so it's not a child problem. Right, and that's where we get into the curriculum disorder. Right, that's right. And so, it's, but we've always said, I mean, every school system in the world must match the curriculum to the developmental abilities of the child. Right. You know, there's only so much an eight-year-old an eight can do. It doesn't matter what country they live in. Right. Biologically, there's only so much an eight-year-old can do. Right. You know, you can't teach a, a seven-year-old calculus. Right. They, they just don't have the neurons. They don't have the experience. They don't have the background. So you don't teach that. Can you teach it to... Are there some kids who can learn calculus at seven? Yeah, but but they they become newsworthy because it's so odd. Right, right. But the typical seven-year-old doesn't learn algebra and calculus. They don't have the background. And right. so it's not developmentally appropriate. So right. the goal is to match curriculum to developmental abilities. What's happened in our country is the kindergarten curriculum certainly outpaces most, certainly most boys, five, five and six-year-old boys, I'm not able to handle that curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. So we end up 
um, putting kids through this process and right. identifying them as having a learning disability, um, even when a learning disability, even when there may be lots of other um, reasons for the difficulty the student is having. Right. Um, right. And, and so that, and if we did that testing, that neuropsychological mm -hmm. testing that we referred to before, the from the discrepancy model, we would be mm -hmm. able to see that the student is typically developing. We say, okay, you know, even as academics are typical average mm -hmm. range, so let's not put him in special education. Let's continue to provide interventions, perhaps. Let's continue to work with him, but um, let's hold off on a, a diagnosis of a learning disability until the kid has a little bit more experience and um, training with in the classroom and with these interventions. Yeah. So before you go to the label, right? You know, let's make sure. Let, let's be certain. Uh, let's know what we're dealing with. Absolutely. And that's where we get. That's what we were talking about last week. Is uh, you know we really quickly jump to some of those diagnostic labels. And when we do that, we forget about all the other expl potential explanations for what's going on, so. Right, right. And we have to keep excluding all those things, you know. Um, there are many things that can interfere with the child's education mm -hmm. and many of them have nothing to do with the child. Right, yeah. right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. right. So, so with all of that in mind, once we have a student diagnosed with a learning disability, and we'll, we'll kind of, from here out, we'll kind of assume that the diagnosis is correct. Um, the student is then eligible for special education. Um, in the school, what let's first say, outside of the school, what that really means is maybe some tutoring, um, some special support through some of these educational programs, um, mm -hmm. edu educational companies and stuff with, with some uh, extra um, tutoring and support outside of school. But from the school-based perspective, there's a few different levels of services that a student could receive. Um, and the federal law says that we need to serve students in what they call the least restrictive environment. And that means that we need to keep them as much in general education, the regular education classroom as possible. Right. Um, so we do that in a couple of different ways. Um, one, one is inclusion. That, there's a huge movement in the early, in the mid 2000s, early to mid 2000s um, to push inclusion. Um, and basically that means that students with some of these learning disabilities and different kinds of disabilities stay in the regular education classroom. Um, and they, they, they stay in there the whole time, but then maybe a teacher will come in, a special education teacher will come in and work specifically with a, a small group of students who are having you know, reading problems. And so they come in during the reading block and just work with that group to provide them some, some support, but they stay in the general education classroom. Right, because that's, that's where the regular, that's where the curriculum occurs. Right. It occurs in these classrooms, in these regular education classrooms. And once you take a child out of that room, you're taking them out of the curriculum. And if you keep taking them out year after year after year, they're missing a regular education right. that would lead to a standard diploma. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, and so I, I think I would say a good portion, most kids with learning disabilities are, are provided support that way. Uh, in the class, right. Mm -hmm. um, sort of the, the second layer, and that's if if the if an inclusion model isn't sufficient because a student right. needs some additional individual support or more intensive um, small group or in individual support, then we move to a model called a resource. Um, and what that means is that the student stays in the regular education classroom, 
but during reading block, um, he might leave the regular education classroom and go to a, another classroom to work with the special education teacher, again, maybe with another small group of students or something, but works with them separately during the reading block, and then they'll come back to regular education for other subjects and for um, the rest of the, everything else for the day. Um, and that's called resource. Um, and then of course, the most intensive is the student isn't in regular education classroom at all and is completely housed in a special education classroom where right. everybody in the classroom has a, an individual <laughs> education plan. Um, everyone in the classroom has um, a learning disability or some other right. disability that's in, interfering with their learning. Um, and they just have a special education teacher um, in that classroom. Um, the students may go to specials like re, um, yeah. PE and music and art and things like that with the regular education classroom, but for everything else, they stay in the special education classroom. So you have these different levels. Um, and again, the idea is to keep them in the regular education classroom with their regular education peers um, right. as much as possible. Yeah, because if you take a kid out, and that's what we learned, the the these these federal laws were were developed in the '70s, and after about ten years of experience, once we got in the '80s, mm -hmm. people began to realize that while wow, we're pulling these kids out of regular education, and they're falling behind academically, so we said, well, we can't let that happen. So then we started to move toward an inclusion. Let's keep them in the regular uh, class as much as we can. Right. And, and that's, there, that's right. And there, and there are pros and cons to it. Um, you know, I, I think it's great that we do that. Um, mm -hmm. But that we, we are very slow sometimes to recognize that some mm -hmm. students need more intensive services than can be provided in the regular right. education classroom through a through an inclusion or even a, a resource model. Um, right. Some students need more than that. So, um, but you know, it's good that we are at least considering that so that we're not immediately going to pulling them out and putting them in a special classroom or even a, a separate ESC special education school. You know, there, there are those um, school, entire schools that are just for special education. So um, but those, are, those are much more restrictive. We talked about the least restrictive, the most restrictive are these special schools. Right. Yeah. And so they're not even in the same building. Right, so we typically try to right. that. So, mm -hmm. but so students will get services in there. The services will vary depending on um, what's going on with the student, what's going, you know, what the composition of the um, the class looks like, and um, you know, the teachers will do different things. Many times, there's a teacher with a paraprofessional in there to help help out, so that the student teacher ratio is um, is good for providing students with as much individual and indirect um, um, intervention as possible. Right. So, um, and, and students are there. Um, the likelihood of a student coming out of special education um, isn't great. You know, a lot of times, many times, students who uh, are identified with a learning disability in early to mid elementary school they usually remain um, identified as having a learning disability through elementary, middle, and even high school. Um, you know, parents have to be very careful, um, especially in that around the time that they turn 14, um, uh, as they're going into, as they're in middle school and starting to transition from middle school to high school, 
because that is the time in which they make a decision as far as what type of diploma the student is going to earn um, to make sure that the student stays on track to earn a standard diploma or if the concern is that they, they're not going to pass the tests that are necessary or whatever to, to meet those criteria. Decision, those decisions are made in middle school. Um, so uh, parents have to be cautious of that. But, um, but yeah, uh, it, it, is, it is a bit difficult, especially with learning disabilities to come out of special education once you're, once you're in there. Right, because it's not something that is going to go away. I mean, if it is a true learning disability, it's not going to go away. And no matter how hard you work at it, you're gonna make some progress. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you can make, that you can make a reader out of a non-reader, right. I think is cruel to, right. let, to make people think that, to lead people to the belief that, well, my child has, you know, this severe reading disability, but with enough intervention, he'll become a fluent reader, no your child will improve their reading, but the chances of them ever becoming a fluent reader are pretty low. Right. Um, and I think that we need, to, we, need to, we need to understand that a true learning disability is, is just that. It's not, it's not that you're gonna catch up in some way. It is something that you're gonna to have to work on and you're probably gonna have it the rest of your life. It's like ADHD. Right. You, know, you don't grow out of ADHD, we used to think. You know, years ago, generation ago, we thought, well, eventually you grow up. No, kids with disabilities, our kids with ADHD become adults with ADHD. You know, you don't outgrow it, right. and you don't outgrow a learning disability. Right, right, and and so, um, and and that's again where it gets back to you just have to make sure that the diagnosis is correct. Um, that's why di exactly. That's why a label. That's why the diagnosis has to be accurate because you have to know exactly what you're dealing with and develop realistic expectations. Right, yeah. Because uh, that's, that's the downfall of the incorrect label um, that the student is there and stays there. Um, and if they're not learning disabled, but they're identified as learning disabled, then that's right. going to, you know, that's a, that's a difficult path um, and really difficult to get out of. So um, that's the importance. That's why we did this podcast was to talk right. about that, that difference because right. um, parents and teachers and students even need to be cognizant of that so that support and services and assistance are provided to those who really need it. Right. But if the student doesn't need it um, and doesn't need that label, we're not just throwing that label out there um, right. just because. Right. Yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be for an advantage. It, it, we should make accommodations mm -hmm. for, for those kids who really need it. And that, that begins with a careful, thoughtful, and accurate diagnosis. Right. What, are, what are we dealing with here? Is it a delay or is it a deficit? Right. There's a huge difference between a delay, which you assume is going to get better, and a deficit, which you assume is it's something you're going to have to learn how to work with. Right, absolutely. So, all right. Good. That's everything for learning disabilities that we're gonna talk about today at least, so. Um, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll kind of break down some different um, diagnoses and different things um, over the next few weeks just to kind right. of share some of that. So, but right. that there is it for today. Um, right. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid. <laughs>